Hello everyone and welcome to Science Communication, looking deeper into health in Canada. My name is Shreya Singh and hosting with me is Abby, a fellow student at McMaster University. Today we will have the opportunity to talk about a pressing yet not widely known topic, perinatal mental health of Indigenous women. Through interviews with our knowledgeable guest speakers, we aim to help adults in Canada learn about current health issues and more importantly, generate discussions. In today's episode, we will look into the research behind this issue. Before we begin, I want to take this time to recognize that McMaster University is currently on the traditional territory shared between the Haudenosaunee Confederacy and the Anishinaabe Nations, which was acknowledged in the dish with one spoon wampum belt. That wampum uses the symbolism of a dish to represent the territory and one spoon to represent that the people are to share the resources of the land and only take what they need. So with us today, we have Ms. Sawaris Oways, uh, MD, PhD student here at McMaster University and the first author of the research paper, The Perinatal Mental Health of Indigenous Women, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Good morning, Ms. Owais. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. So I gave a quick introduction, but would you be able to talk about yourself briefly for our audience? Yeah, for sure. So um, as you mentioned, my name is Severa. I'm a third-year um, MD-PhD student here at MAC. Uh, we'll be talking a bit more about my research today, but broadly it focuses on perinatal mental health and the mechanisms of transmission from mom to offspring. Uh, before I came to this MD-PhD program, I did my master's in, at MAC as well in neuroscience, and then I did my undergrad in neuroscience at Western University. That's great. So um, before we get into mental, uh, sorry, perinatal mental health, uh, we actually first have to answer what perinatal mental health is. So, uh, Ms. OS, would you be able to give us some insight into this? Yeah, for sure. And you, you can just call me Severa. Um, but yeah, so perinatal mental health. So these are mental health challenges such as depression or anxiety that present during pregnancy and up to one year postpartum or the perinatal period. Um, and some of the things that may exacerbate these mental health challenges, right, we have to understand that um, the mother or the mother-to-be is going through uh, a lot of changes, whether those are hormonal changes, uh, the change in the sleep cycle, um, and of course, psychosocial factors as well, right? So whether she's had a prior history of psychiatric illness, um, if there's any uh, family history of mental illness, these can all increase the risk for perinatal mental health problems. All right. Thank you. Okay. Yep. So the reason we asked you to join us here today is to discuss the research that uh, you've done regarding Indigenous perinatal mental health. So could you run us through your research and findings? Yeah, for sure. So the, the paper that you were mentioning, so that was a systematic review and meta-analysis. Um, and maybe I can just take a, a quick step back just to explain what that is. So a systematic review um, essentially, you're going into databases, if you're familiar with PubMed or things like um, Embase or Medline, you're going into these electronic databases and you're telling the system, okay, um, bring me up every article that is related to my research question. And in this case, it was looking at the prevalence of mental health problems uh, among Indigenous women around the world. So um, that's what the searches pulled up. And I went through, and of course, some articles are not going to be relevant to your research question, so you just exclude those. Um, and I came up with a total of 21 articles that I wanted to include in my review. And then the second part of that, which is the meta-analysis, 
So as you can imagine, a lot of um, different articles are going to have varying results, right? Some might say, oh, um, women, uh, about 10% of women present with these problems. Other studies might say, no, it's 20%, 30%, whatever it is. So meta-analysis is essentially an average of, of all of those studies. So in the systematic review and meta-analysis, as I mentioned, I um, looked at 21 studies and I found across those 21 studies, Indigenous women around the world are at a 62% increased risk of experiencing mental health problems around the perinatal period. And this is particularly true for depression, anxiety, and substance use. That's very interesting. So just one comment I had was that I noticed that most of the studies analyzed were not Canadian. Is there kind of a lack of Canadian research on this topic? Yeah, that's a great point. So I think um, when it comes to looking at um, indigenous research, I think Australia and New Zealand have um, really taken great strides in looking um, not just at uh, indigenous perinatal mental health, but indigenous mental health in general. Um, yeah, there were there were a lack of Canadian studies and whether that if it's a specific focus for perinatal mental health or just broadly in general, it's hard to say. I think we can also take a step back and uh, maybe look at what kind of studies we're including or not including in our reviews, right? Because um, there are different ways of approaching mental health and Indigenous approaches of mental health are very different from Western approaches. So I think sometimes when we say, oh, maybe there's not enough research, I think we also have to take a step back and say, okay, well, what's what's our inclusion and exclusion criteria? Um, so I think if, if we look at studies uh, around the world, I think it's important to acknowledge what kind of definitions they're using of mental health, what measurement tools they're using, and why certain studies may not may or may not be included. Yeah, so that actually ties into my next question. So um, you mentioned about how there's a difference between, I guess, like mental health um, and how it's perceived and also presented in Indigenous and non-Indigenous populations. Could you maybe speak a little bit more to that? Like what kind of differences are there and what have you seen? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, just to preface that, I want to say that um, Indigenous people are not a homogenous group. There is rich diversity between and within Indigenous peoples, um, whether it's across the world or within Canada. Um, so I can't say that a single, that the, a single, um, there's only a single view of uh, Indigenous health. Um, but from the readings that I've done, um, approaches to mental health in Indigenous cultures really take a whole so they look at the mind, body, uh, spirit, and they have a lot of connections with the natural world. They don't view any um, dele delineations or demarcations between that. Whereas maybe Western approaches, it's very um, clinical or categorical. And, um, you know, they look at this disorder separately versus this and this. Whereas in some uh, Indigenous cultures, they don't make any differentiation between that. Um, something else that I've noticed in the readings is that there is a very great emphasis placed on the health of not just the individual, but the family members and the community members as well. And the, the kinship among that, um, their health is very much interrelated. Uh, so that's another difference that I've noticed. That's really interesting. So that's present in a lot of societies too, like the difference between, I guess, like an individualist and like more of a collective society. So I'm guessing that that plays a part. So another question I had was you mentioned, I think it was the 62% more likely that Indigenous women have mental health issues after 
um, during perinatal care. So um, what do you believe that uh, are the root causes of these mental health problems in this population? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, some of the risk factors that we talked about previously, right? So whether that's a prior psychiatric history, history rather, um, if it's uh, low socioeconomic status, um, increased exposure to violence, uh, maybe neighborhood disadvantage, all of these uh, risk factors, um, when, we when we're talking about Indigenous peoples, they are all products of historical and ongoing co colonial trauma. Um, so when we're really getting at the fundamental root, we have to go back to the um, assaults that have been done during colonization and the continued assaults that's occurring, um, right? Because I think we can't talk about these risk factors or disadvantages without acknowledging the history and the impact that they're having today. So uh, truly, if we're talking about the root causes, that's that's what I would say. And they've they've resulted in the products that we see today, right? So the fact that um, some Indigenous groups, they may have low, lower socioeconomic status, the overcrowded housing that they face, the food insecurity. Um, these are, in general populations, risk factors for mental health problems. And um, Indigenous peoples face these structural disadvantages because of the colonial trauma. Yeah, for sure. As a Canadian, I think we're or we all should be more aware of um, the history and take into account what that means for health as well. Yeah, so just to continue on with your paper, so it did discuss a few future directions for research specifically. Um, could you explain them to us and why this is important to implement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think one of the things we noticed in our systematic review and meta-analysis is that quite a number of studies did not use measurement tools that were validated with the Indigenous population that they were working in. So this is going back to our discussion earlier about Indigenous versus Western approaches to mental health. So you might be using tools that were normed in general population samples, but those tools may not be accurately capturing what is depression or what is anxiety or what is mental health in that specific Indigenous population. So if you're not using the right tools, you're not going to be getting the right estimates, and therefore you're not, not going to be able to get the appropriate um, interventions that are needed. Uh, another thing that we noticed with the review is that um, there wasn't a lot of disaggregated data available. So what I mean by this is that, as I mentioned earlier, there's rich diversity between and among Indigenous peoples. Uh, in Canada, we have three uh, major Indigenous groups, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis. And what we noticed is that uh, whether it was within Canada or around the world, they um, amalgamate those groups into a single Indigenous group, right? And we're not acknowledging the uh, cultural differences um, that may come about and influence mental health rates. So it's important to have disaggregated data so we're able to look at individual groups differently and, of course, target interventions for the specific uh, Indigenous group that you're engaged with. Uh, just the, the final point that I want to mention is that if we're looking at this from a research perspe perspective, I don't think any strides can be made without the collaboration of Indigenous groups themselves. Um, there's a principle known as nothing about us without us, which I think um, comes from um, done, uh, disability advocates. But that's essentially saying, um, you know, gone are the days where researchers fly into communities and do research on, I'm doing air quotes here, on Indigenous peoples and then fly out, right, just for the benefit of their own work. It's important that we're asking research questions that in the end are going to benefit the communities. 
And I think that's why it's important to be flexible with your research questions. So you, we need to be engaged with the communities, ask them what it is that they want answered, what they're interested in, and then build research questions together, build those measurement tools together. And then that engagement hopefully can then um, lead to great strides and advancement for the benefit of communities. Great. Thank you so much for that. Um, so now let's take a little step back. I just want to ask, like, why did you pursue this project specifically? You know, why perinatal mental health? Yeah, yeah, Abby, that's a great question. So um, I got interested in perinatal mental health during my undergrad. Um, and I think just throughout my uh, years of um, education, when I did my master's and now in my PhD, I think I'm still fascinated by the profound impact that a mother, not only on herself, but on her offspring as well. Um, I'm, I'm completely, uh, it still fascinates me to this day, right? So how um, mothers or parents may interact with their kids, even during infancy, how that has long lasting effects into adolescence and adulthood. Um, I'm just astounded by that fact. And also I'm inspired and hopeful of the fact that if we're able to optimize or improve the mental health of moms, then we can not only help them and their families, um, but their, their children as well, right? We're able to break this inter intergenerational cycle of transmission of psychopathology. So I think there's lots of uh, opportunities to intervene and optimize mental health. I notice people get stressed out more, but you know, do you believe perinatal mental health issues have been becoming like worse over time? And like, how has society helped to combat these issues? And are there any available resources for Indigenous people that are struggling with mental health? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's difficult to say whether things have gotten worse over time or not. I think it's hard to remember what the before times are. But certainly I can say with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think mental health across the board has worsened for all populations, uh, particularly mothers, um, because at the height of the pandemic, you know, there was increased fear of going to hospitals and potentially contracting the virus. And at that time, we weren't sure about vertical transmission, um, whether the virus would be passed on from mom to baby. Um, so there, you know, and there was limited prenatal appointments. And then even during birth, um, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure about the policies now. I think they're allowing one visitor, but I think initially maybe they weren't allowed anybody at all. So they had to um, not have anybody in the delivery room. And then, of course, all the celebrations you do afterwards, right? Nobody's allowed to visit you. So I think certainly um, mothers were impacted during the uh, COVID-19 pandemic for talking about recent times. In terms of supports available, um, yes, there are organizations. And I think it's important to point out um, Indigenous-led organizations for mental health. So in Hamilton, Ontario, there's the Desdoies de Desnes Aboriginal Health Centre. Um, there's also the Thunderbird Partnership Foundation, that's uh, support for mental health for First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. Um, so certainly there are uh, organizations available. And I think increasingly hospitals are um, adding um, cultural competency courses, or there's also programs known as the Aboriginal Navigator Program, um, which helps Indigenous patients um, navigate hospital systems and appointments. Um, but it's just a means of making sure that people have access to this care and they're aware of it. And of course, providing culturally safe and competent care. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you. You talked a little bit right now about uh, kind of community programs and, um, but do you know anything if the Canadian government itself has implemented any policies uh, regarding perinatal mental health in the Indigenous communities? 
Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm not specifically um, aware of any um, policies that the at a national level. Um, I know certainly, again, um, when we're talking about prenatal mental health, uh, Indigenous organizations are certainly trying to bring these things back to the community. So for instance, um, there, there are uh, Indigenous midwifery or um, midwives that are located on reserves now. And if women have a low risk pregnancy, they encourage them to uh, give birth in traditional setting and they have their traditional birth ceremonies uh, in that manner. Um, So I think certainly indigenous communities themselves are trying to um, advocate and improve um, mental health whenever possible. Thank you. So um, that kind of also ties into the next question where um, one policy that I was reading about was the Health Canada's birth evacuation policy, where the policy mandates that women living on First Nation reserves in remote or rural communities travel to urban centers a few weeks prior to delivery. And this policy is supposedly designed so that Indigenous mothers can gain access to perinatal services that m- might not be available in their own community. However, organizations uh, that, like you just mentioned, the National Aboriginal Council of Midwives, um, have released public statements condemning this policy and urging the return of births um, back into the mother's own community. Can you explain this pushback a little bit and uh, what kind of effects that birth evacuations can have on mental health in this population? Yeah, so for the birth evacuation policy, which you um, very nicely described and summarized, Right. So these women, um, for even up to several weeks prior to before they give birth, right, they're flown out of their communities, often by themselves. I think they might have changed this recently, and now they're allowing one additional person to fly with them. But I believe prior, you had to either, you could only bring somebody if you were either um, under the age of 16, or if you had a major uh, medical complication. But often they're flown out by themselves in a community that they don't know anybody uh, in uh, to give birth by themselves in this um you know, it's a very sterile, cold environment. Um, you can imagine what that might do for um, her mother, a mother and her new baby. So um, I think that's why midwifery programs were calling for a return to birth um, to also acknowledge that, you know, there are traditional birthing ceremonies to take place. And um, maybe the medicalization of birth is not something that is um, in line with some Indigenous cultural uh, views. And if we're talking about, you know, they're, they're doing this for access to prenatal, uh, prenatal or um, postnatal care. Okay, that's why don't we have those organizations come on the reserve? Why aren't we able to build those systems on the reserve? Um, you know, so again, I think it goes back to kind of colonial and assimilation policies where we have to remember that these people were pushed out onto these lands and now we're saying, okay, there's no services available for you. So um, I think it's always important to remember the historical uh, context here and maybe what gives rise to these policies. But um, yeah, absolutely. I think for for low-risk pregnancies, it's uh, helpful for moms if they're able to give birth on their traditional lands, have as many people in the room as they want with them, which is in line with some cultural views um, to bring a baby into the world. I agree 100%. So you know what? Let's, um, let's look outside of Canada, right? So in other parts of the world, it actually seems that the prevalence of mental health problems is actually lower in Indigenous populations um, in comparison to non-Indigenous groups. And you talked about this in your paper uh, as well, actually. 
So it's been suggested that indigenous populations, they may have a greater resiliency because of their cultural teachings and connectedness to traditional lands, right? So are you able to shed some light on how these cultural practices serve as a protective factor um, against mental health issues? Yeah, Abby, so that's a great question. So that's another thing that's been in the um, literature is that often when we read about uh, Indigenous uh, peoples in research papers, it's often from something called a deficits-based perspective. So we're only really identifying um, their risk factors or their mental health challenges. And maybe there's not enough uh, research that, um, you know, Western-based researchers do on the resiliency and the strengths of Indigenous peoples, right? We have to remember that the historical colonial assimilation policies were systematically designed to get rid of Indigenous peoples, but they are still here and thriving today. And I think that's why it's very important to um, highlight the resiliency as well, right? And not only focus on um, deficits or uh, risk factors that they may have. So absolutely, um, there have been some systematic reviews that have been conducted that have been shown that have shown that Indigenous ad adults have lower rates of uh, certain mental health problems compared to non-Indigenous adults. And again, um, this can be due to a variety of things, as you mentioned. It could be their resiliency, which they learn through their cultural teachings, um, and the immense amount of kinship that they may have um, with their community members and living on traditional lands. Uh, relearning uh, their traditional languages. Um, it could be due to uh, measurement um, issues as well, right, which we talked about earlier. Uh, it's hard to say, but absolutely, I agree. The um, resiliency of uh, Indigenous peoples is something that must be acknowledged and integrated into future research. Thank you. So um, just a follow-up question to that. So you mentioned about resiliency and uh, how it um, interacts with uh, Indigenous traditions as well. So with kind of kind of like a cultural loss in the Indigenous populations and some, some uh, populations, is there any way for the Canadian government or communities to strengthen or foster that relationship between Indigenous communities and traditions in order to enhance resiliency and improve mental health? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And I think a difficult question. Um, I think when it comes back to this, and this is obviously not from experience, this is only from the readings that I've done. So I, I can't um, unfortunately provide rich context here. But I think in, in cases like these, you really have to um, ask the communities what kind of supports um, or networks they need to foster their own resilience. Um, you know, uh, so whether that's increased funding, um, whether that's increased ask, access to basic necessities while living on reserve for people who live on reserve. Um, I think these are questions to be posed to community members that are most affected by the, by the issue um, and just support them in whatever way possible. All right, great. So, you know what, last question. Uh, if there's one thing that you would want uh, our listeners to take away from this research, from your research, uh, what would it be? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I just really want to emphasize the fact that the mental health of mothers not only profoundly affects themselves, but their children and their family members as well. Um, and if we're able to optimize the mental health of moms, we may be able to uh, improve the mental health of their children and family members as well. So um, that's, that's one point I'd really like to highlight. And like I said, I find that fascinating. Um, so if we're able to support 
um, you know, these individuals in our community, we can hopefully build healthier communities and generations. Thank you for joining us, uh, Severa. Uh, we're definitely really grateful for your knowledge knowledgeable insights and in this conversation that we've been having today. Uh, learned a lot. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That concludes our discussion for today. We want to thank all of our listeners for joining us on our journey to learn more about health in Canada and the issues that matter to you. Thank you.